Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors, wherever you get your podcasts. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Don't worry, I won't hurt you. I only want you to have some fun. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. I'm glad I picked this year because there was actually even more films than I thought. <laughs> I, I know. I'm literally looking at this list. And I'm going, I actually want to talk about even more of your Joe. He sent this list of, uh, to be fair, there's 10, 10 big ones. And then there's this thing here where it says also. <laughs> uh-huh. And so is this going yeah, to be a Wayne Kramer oh. kind of uh, episode where we, no, no, well, he's, no, he's no, only no. got 90 minutes, but we may have to bring him back. <laughs> and I even told him, I said, just whatever you do, don't, don't mention soundtracks. Cause uh, that was half an hour that you guys went off on soundtracks. <laughs> All right, look forward to that. <laughs> I, I um, it's yeah, it's funny. The ones so I picked nineteen ninety nine as my year. Are we we're we going now, right? Yeah, oh, we're, we're always, always going. going, baby. We're always <laughs> I know, going. I know. I I've, I've listened to the show enough. I know it just starts. The only thing we say. cut is when Joe goes <laughs> off on his racist rants. And then we just I cut those. Everything else stays in though. Well, what's funny is I picked so I picked like ten big ones, and there's a sort of theme to most of them. But then when I was looking through for notables, I realized that in the notables are a lot of other people's favorite films of all time, you know, or or some. And there's one film in the notables that I think I don't know if it's IndieWire or one of the websites picked it as the best film of the '90s, which I don't entirely agree about. But it's like, but it's um, it's or maybe it's even. Yeah, maybe it was the best film of the nineties. Yeah, it was. It was on NDY. That's right. But I I picked ten for nineteen ninety nine, and and what why I picked this year in particular was I was turned twenty five in nineteen ninety nine, and I had um, I made my first movie, A Fistful of Fingers, which is a very I, I don't know if you could even say no low budget, no budget movie um, on sixteen mil. But in, in, in between then, that came out in November 1995. And, and after that, I started directing TV and uh, did uh, TV shows on sort of cable in the UK and then the BBC. And then eventually this show called Space, which is where, you know, like me and Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines and Nick Frost all did this show together. And, Boy, and can, can I jump in? Because I, oh, yeah. I literally have a note here because it's always like, make sure you don't forget. And, and uh, 
because uh, I had gone on. I've been wanting to rewatch that, um, which is a show I stumbled across. I was in the UK. God knows when I used to hit video stores and just buy, you know, stuff that you couldn't get over here. And I would always pick up a couple of things I did not know anything about. And Spaced was one of those. Um, and I've been a fan forever. And I was literally just yesterday going, oh, I need to show Nancy Spaced. And then being the nerd I am, there's no, is there going to be, I've got the DVDs, but is there ever like any intention of like an HD re-release of that or anything? Or are we? It's funny. I'll say this out loud so I can put it into the universe. But I, I did ask like um, my producer and, and my editor, actually, the editor of Spaced I still work with. And I said, hey, we should do a Blu-ray for the 20th anniversary. Yeah. And everybody sort of said, well, there's, there's no way of upgrading the picture. Like, I think it, it will only get as good as it got on the DVD. But still, oh, now I've said it on it the- was shot on, It wasn't shot on film. No, no, it was shot on DigiBeat. No, I've, I've, got, I've got a couple of projects that do the same thing. People say, well, how come there's no, no Blu-ray of Erie, Indiana? Right, said, because Indiana, it's yeah. because you have to up-res it. And you up-res it, it's going to all fall apart. Well, listen, if I say it on the podcast, maybe somebody out there saying, we'll make the Blu-ray of space. So I'm just saying Channel 4, the kids want the Blu-ray of space. Let's figure it out. Maybe AI can stuff. fill in the gaps in 20 years, another 20 years. Time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. You know, Don't that's coming. That. Don't you put that out <laughs> into the world. I'm cutting that. I, I, I fully believe, I was funny, I was talking with, um, I, was t- I did this, uh, Quentin's London leg of the cinema speculation tour um, of his sort of book tour. And I sort of moderated right, yeah, both nights. Of, yes. And of course, in that book, he's talking a lot about not just not alternate endings, but the, the endings that never were the things that were in the script that never got shot or the things that were in the novel that were never adapted. And I did say, I did say like, give AI 10 years and you'll be able to make those alternate endings yourself. Yes. With with Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw, you can have the El Rey ending of the getaway if you want. Just right. just just put the film into the into the computer and it will spit it out for you. Well, you know the so one I've that- always wanted is uh, is uh, I'm dying to. Uh, no no offense to the gentleman, he's lovely, he's wonderful, but everybody, including him, I bet knows I'm right. I would love to see um, Majesty's Secret Service with uh, Sean Connery. I mean, yes. No, no, no disrespect to Mr. Lazy. That's, that's a tall order, though, even for AI. <laughs> oh, yeah, this, this year, Joe, this year. Um, the, the reason I picked 1999 was, uh, so I had made Spaced at the start of 99, and I, I finished shooting the show just before I turned 25. Um, so I shot the whole of the first series of space when I was 24. And the thing is, is that I had not, I had not made a movie since Fist of the Fingers, but I really wanted to make another movie. And I still had another second series of space to go. But the bug of doing another feature was very much in me. And 1999 was the, 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 the year that made me really jealous. There were like a lot of movies out there where I was just sort of like, just starting to kind of froth over of just thinking, oh my God, I have to make a feature. I have to be, I want to be a feature filmmaker. And so some of the movies on this list are exactly those movies that, that made me kind of just, just, uh, you know, kind of overawed or just kind of like, it, it's always a great feeling. I mean, you know, you both directed and stuff where you see something and you're just excited about what you do. 
Uh, like the first one on the list, in fact, was one where I like came out of the cinema so buzzing that I was just like, fuck me, I've got to make another film. And this is a film, it's technically, it's a 1998 film, but it didn't get released until the summer uh, in 99 in the US. I actually was on, when I finished Spaced, I had a holiday in California. I came to Los Angeles and also... I think I went to Las Vegas at one point as well. But weirdly enough, quite a few of the films on this list I watched during that period of being on holiday in LA. But in, 19, in the summer of 1999, I think in Beverly Hills, maybe in, um, what's the one on Wilshire, the music? Yes, what no, that's where it played. Yes, I, I know it's coming. Yeah, yeah okay, that's that. where I saw it. That's where okay, I saw so it. I saw Tom uh, Twyker's movie, Run, Lola, Run, German title, Lola Rent which um, is, I just, is, is a movie starring, you know, Franca Patenta, and that's probably mangling all these pronunciations, but it, you know, it, it's, it's about, she, she has to kind of, uh, she got 20 minutes to ga- gather a large amount of money to save her boyfriend from uh, drug dealers. And you basically, within the film, which I think is only 82 minutes long, which is, I know, Joe, you like a good under 90 minutes. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lola, Lola Rente is 82 minutes long and shows you three different versions of how this is going to go down. All uh, set forgive to me, this, forgive like, me, correction, 80 minutes long. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Like, I mean, I mean... I think, I think there should be, I think there should be a new Academy Award category for films under 90. Imagine if they had yes. that best picture under 90. Imagine oh how many God. people would go for it and it would bring back everything you wanted in storytelling. Yes. <laughs> people saying, yes. hey, we can get that under 90 minutes best picture. <laughs> I honestly thought, wouldn't that be a great company to have? Joe, I know you're already on board with it. As if you had a thing is that like you, the, the films can only be under 19 minutes long. That's, that's how things were at New World. Absolutely. <laughs> and, the reason was, and, and the reason was because Roger didn't want to pay for the extra can. How, how long is Hollywood Boulevard? Like 76 minutes? 80, it's 83 minutes, actually. It's one of my 83, longer. 83, okay. <laughs> it's one of the longer <laughs> ones. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I just, uh, I remember seeing run low the run and just it being one of the i mean i already wanted to be a film director but it was just kind of reinforcing that i had to do it right now <laughs> now it would take yeah. me another five years for sure of the dead to come out but but run low the run was one of those and i think even like sort of um a producer that I was working with back in London, she said, oh, I saw this movie called Run, Lola, Run, and I thought of you. And I was like, I know! <laughs> I know, I have to make a film! I get it! <laughs> like, and, uh, but I, I just always been in such admiration of that film. And, and actually, most of the ones I picked in my 10 are ones that I've returned to a lot. Some of the ones in the Notables, which we'll get to later, are ones that I actually haven't seen since the time. But Run, Lola, I mean, have you I, stayed on the, have you, you must have stayed on the road with, with, uh, on, on the ride with Tom, I, I can never know, is it Tyker or Twiker, as you say, um, you know, stuff like Perfume and then his work with the Wachowskis on Sensei. Oh yeah, he did Cloud Atlas, yeah. I've never actually met Tom, but we have emailed a bunch of times actually. Mm. And when I showed it at the New Beverly, he wrote me a really nice intro to like read out in front of the movie. And he called it his, he called it his red rocket, which I thought was great. <laughs> like, I guess he was talking about Lola cause you got red hair, but 
it, it, it really stands up, that movie. I watched it the other day. My girlfriend had never seen it, and it like knocked her for six as well. And I thought, God, this film still is really good. And it's always one, when I talk to young filmmakers, I say, like, watch this movie. This movie is going to blow your brains out. And it's so well-made, and it's so tight, and it's so inventive. And I just think it's extraordinary in that film. You have to we get over the fact it that enough. it's really, really old. Get over the fact that it's really old and give it a shot, because I know old movies are challenging to <laughs> It holds up though. It's like put that <laughs> no, on in the cinema. Put that on in the cinema now and turn the volume yeah. up, and like everybody would love Hell, it. Yes, I mean, I honestly, um, it's a movie too that just even stylistically, if you played today, um, you, you wouldn't change. I mean, if you made it, no, today, it, you wouldn't change it, a frame. Listen, of it. I watched it with somebody who'd never seen it before the other day, and they loved it. It, it just works. The movie works. Yeah. And there's not really, because it's Berlin, you can't really tell what decade it's in anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think ni- 90s Berlin fashions, you would probably be very much in vogue today. Yeah. <laughs> like <it> could, <laughs> all, of those, all of those things that they're wearing in the movie would, be, would not be out of place in a fashion shoot right now. Yeah, Ex- exactly. <laughs> um, What's number two? Yeah, Should I do the next one? one? Number yeah. two is uh, a film where I saw this film and at the time that I saw it, I had not seen his debut his debut did not get released in the UK. Back in these days, by the way, around 98, 99, the very, very early days of DVD, I don't think I had a DVD player at that point, or maybe at the end of 99 I did. But in those days, you know, um, if something wasn't released in the UK, it might not have come out on VHS either. And, you know, and the film that I hadn't seen by this director, I had never seen Bottle Rocket, which was not released in the UK. And at the time... Uh, this is actually another 1998 film, Rushmore. Now, this was not released in the UK until later. I don't think it came out until 2000, maybe, at the cinema. But I saw this on... I wanted to see it because I'd heard about it, and I'd heard about Wes Anderson in the days when you had print magazines, and it was like, what's this movie, Rushmore, that is... is I knew it was culty. I just had not seen it. And I knew that Bill Murray was great in it, but it was like a cult thing. I'd read about it in magazines, but it was like not on, not released at the cinema in the UK um, yet. And I saw it on a hotel TV in Las Vegas, probably cropped as well, like pan and scanned. And yet, like another one where it was like, what is this? Who is this? How can I be a part of this? This is amazing. And on on so many levels, I know, and, and you know, it's only a second film, but it's it's so ridiculously confident that film stylistically what it wants to do the world he wants to you know create schwartzman's performance for his first movie is just like off the charts incredible i mean it's almost like in a weird way schwartzman is so good in so effortless in it you sort of forget what a great performance it is i think maybe because people didn't really know who jason was at that time um i think i think he doesn't often get enough credit as an actor because people think he is like that. But what an amazing performance to give us your debut performance. He'd never acted before. It's incredible. Um, And then, you know, the soundtrack of all of the stuff from like Nuggets 2, all of the, uh, you know, British um, invasion sort of psych rock and stuff, you know, and, 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 you know, much like Quentin's movies, um, making kind of popular hits out of... um, you know, gems like Making Time by The Creation, which is not like a song that had particularly been, I don't know, ever been used yep. in a movie before, you know. 
so I just um I just was really knocked out by it. And obviously Wes has continued to sort of, you know, um make movies like this. And it's funny, I never people always kind of give him some stick about, oh, he always makes the same film. But I, I feel with Wes Anderson, it's like, well, you don't say that about an illustrator. Like, Joe, if that you said, you know, like, oh, why doesn't Jack Davis draw in a different style? Who cares? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you want Jack Davis to do Jack Davis. Like, let Wes Anderson draw like Wes Anderson. Well, also, it's not that he doesn't, you know. He he uses the same stylistic uh, tropes. They're they're his, but my God, they're such different films. Um, it's it's ridiculous. Um, I just saw, I literally just saw the trailer for his new one half an hour. I, ago. I just I just saw it as well. That's that yeah. look, the new one looks well up your alley, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And Grand Budapest was my favorite. But the thing, one of the things I love, I love this about somebody like you point, uh, uh, I don't know why it's, uh, there, there was that recent kerfuffle about Meg White and somebody was bagging on what a terrible drummer Meg White is. And I'm like, I'm Wrong. sorry. At a certain point, if you're a fucking artist, like I can tell Meg White just by hearing like three drum beats, that's actually an artist. You own that thing. If you show me that Wes Anderson trailer without telling me what it was, turned off the sound. Every single one of us would have gone, oh, that's Wes Anderson's new movie. That's it's not a, a bad thing. It's just jealousy, like sort of yeah. like, you know, thousands of male musicians would kill to be as iconic as Meg White. Well, hell yeah, they would. And, 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 but, but, you know, it, it is that thing where like you have created a style, you are confident in it, it is your voice and we recognize it. It's like, how, how is that? Why does that annoy you? That's people? hard enough to achieve anyway, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't get why that annoys people. No, I, I think it's just something, I mean, you know, a lot of these things are just kind of tire takes. It's just something for people to say, you know, but it's like, you know, I, I, I just think if Wes Anderson is like, he's like, he, he's an artist in the sense that he has a style and I'm happy yeah. to go and look at one of his paintings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Always. always. It, it's sort of maybe in a similar vein. Uh, um, the next one is uh, Alexander Payne's Election from 1999. Uh, which I think is an extraordinary film. And I really, um, I like Alexander Payne's films, but this, this is still my favorite one. And I think, again, there was something kind of was in, I mean, as we'll go through with this list, there was definitely something in the air in the late 90s that studios were making these films. I mean, Rushmore was Buena Vista. Election was Paramount, I think. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I won't even get into the, the the fact that whether these films would get made at studios today, but it was it was definitely felt like an exciting time that there was something in the air, and and not that all of these films necessarily did, you know, well enough to sort of like continue that happening as major studio films. But I just felt Election was like what a great like it's I mean, it's wrong to call it a teen comedy, but obviously it, it does it's one of the best high school films ever made. I feel. Um, but, you know, with Reese Witherspoon playing the uh, unforgettable Tracy Flick and, uh, you know, it, it, at loggerheads with uh, her high school teacher played by Matthew Broderick, who um, I, I always felt, and I was, I was really disappointed by the DVD commentary that Alexander Payne claimed to have never seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off because I, I could have sworn when I saw the movie that uh, essentially Broderick was cast to be the kind of high school teacher that Fred Ferris Bueller would have pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Not not everyone lives in that universe. We do, though. I I know what you mean, but um, I think he's lying, though. I think, think he's lying? Is lying. Yeah, I think he I think he just doesn't like that take because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to give credit to another film. But I think I think uh, there's definitely okay. something there's definitely something in that. <laughs> I just think it's that uh, Alexander, if you're listening, you can confirm this or not. But um, right. come on the show, you coward! I, I, I don't know what you guys do. You guys do you guys enjoy that film, Election? Oh yeah! Oh my god! There's a sequel that Tom Perota has written to the book called Tracy Flick Can't Win, which came out last year, which I haven't read yet. But apparently, Reese is going to do the movie. I don't know whether Alexander Payne is directing it, oh, but wow. it's like, well, I, I like that idea, especially it's it's not like a you know she's playing her as I think she's a teacher in the book, so I'm excited to see what that is. That would but be interesting. And I, I also, I want to, he never gets, he never gets any love. The, the, I'm going to mispronounce it. Mark Herlick, the, the teacher that she's having the affair with. There's just oh, yeah. that one amazing close up where he's just crying and sniveling and snots running out of his nose and everything where he's been caught. And it's just so cringe inducing and so amazingly, he's just the greatest thing ever. That character. There's and so that many actor. great things in that film. I remember as a, on a stylistic level, there was one thing that this has kind of really appealed to 20, five-year-old me he does this thing in the movie a couple of times where he has two freeze frames and he's obviously shot it on two cameras and is using exactly the same freeze frame from a close-up and a wide and you you know like when you you can tell it's like that's exactly the same shot right it's not like two different freeze frames i just thought that's a really clever little thing that i hadn't really seen done anything else and it's also just got so many quotable lines the one the bit that i always would think about is Matthew Broderick when he's absolutely going to pieces and um, the woman that he's having an affair with has told his wife and he's at school and he calls her on the phone and he's really emotional and he goes, he calls, calls the mistress and goes, why did you do that? Why did you do that? You've ruined my life. You've ruined my life. And then he goes, it's Jim, by the way. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> that, that is an, an amazing performance by Matthew Broderick. It's like so fucking funny, that movie. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that one to death. I've probably seen it 10 times. And then, uh, uh, and I'll cut this if you are friends with her or working with her, because apparently even mentioning this uh, around her will get you banned for life. But um, uh, were you? Uh, have you seen Freeway? Speaking of Reese, oh, I, 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 well, get a band to talk about. I've asked Reese Witherspoon about Freeway. Oh, because I've been told <laughs> that everybody I've ever heard from who's had come up and said something nice about it has just gotten like just excised from her existence. So, are you not? Have, did you well, survive the experience? I love that film. She's I did. No, I know. I know Reese, and I did. Well, I think the first time I ever met her, I told her how much I like Freeway. <laughs> I mean, uh, like, uh, I mean, I haven't seen that film for a long time, but my memory of it is that it is insane. I mean, oh, yeah. I'd like to watch Freeway again. I've never There's seen glorious Freeway Two. I've never seen Freeway Two with Natasha Leon, which I hear is also crazy. It's it's more insane than than good, but it's worth seeing. But yeah, we just watched uh, the new Blu-ray of Freeway, and it just boy, it, it doesn't just deliver. It it's even. It does everything that it did before, only more so somehow because of the times we live in. <laughs> well, the, these films, some of these actually, and like uh, not Election, but definitely um, Citizen Ruth and, mm-hmm. and Freeway, these were films that were not released in the UK at the cinema. And before the days of DVD and before streaming, you would have to buy them on 
the NTSC VHS. And me and Simon Pegg used to, around this time, used to come to New York a lot for like fun weekend, basically go shopping. And in the days before the internet, buy, well, the number one thing is buying uh, like cheaper sneakers at the time when like the the things were massively (laughs) cheaper, cheaper sneakers, cheaper like jeans, DVDs from Kim's video, the one on St. Mark's place, and then go and see what movies were out. But I remember buying Freeway on NTSC VHS and um, and other things like that. Like that, that were just I don't think Freeway's ever released at the cinema in the UK. I haven't seen it for a long time, but I would like to see it again. It's, it's worth and it's I, worth and, checking and, out the new the new Blu-ray. It's um, yeah. And Reese humored me when I said I loved it. Oh, good, good, because <laughs> I, 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 I you didn't get banned. Um, <laughs> Uh, I actually, you know, I had never seen until the other day, talking about Freeway, I had never seen Forbidden Zone. Oh, yes. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Which stars um, uh, Matthew Bright, uh, the director right. of Freeway, right? That is correct. In yeah, fact, he's, he's doing it. the pervious stuff in the film. So now that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> he also did uh, Tiptoes, the uh, the legendary Tiptoes. Yes. That- is uh, worth worth seeing is um it's an experience that's, that's the one where the there's they're um on their knees being uh some of them what, i'm not sure what i'm yeah, not sure gary what oldman. Politi- yeah, you gary oldman is definitely on his knees and he's, a, he's still yeah. doing the um john leguizamo as toulouse lautrec that's right the Moulin Rouge trick. <laughs> <laughs> the old, like, but it's <laughs> like, an incredible performance it's an amazing performance in this uh, insane film but yeah Anyway. I've never actually seen Tiptoes. I've only seen the trailer. I've always wanted to see the entire movie. It's worth. I guess there's no the actual the, the man. The whole thing was that they they chopped the shit out of the entire movie, so we'll never see it. But the the version that you can see is worth. It, it's got huge issues. It's not. Uh, no no one would call it good, unfortunately. But yeah, there's some just wild performances. I I did see Matthew Bright's Bundy film, which is pretty like out there. Oh, has yeah. some good things to recommend it. It's in very, it, very dubious taste throughout, but mm-hmm. it's an interesting watch. For sure. Anyway, For we should sure. get back to our year. Yes, let's get back to 1999. Apologies. You can't, with 1999, it feels so close to you being able to cut in Fight the Power from Public Enemy, but you can't. <laughs> I know, but it's the same rhyme. <laughs> That's right, 1999, this summer. Well, we did um, that. I don't know if you heard it when Dan Waters did uh, 1999. I did, I did. Oh, I did, yeah, we <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there's something that Dan. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal one of Dan Waters' thoughts because I thought he's absolutely dead on. Is um, he said about 1989 that it's the bellwether of the 90s? It's like it's like the kind of a hint of what's coming. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's probably true with these films, although I'm not sure the rest of the decade kept up with 1999. If I'm completely honest. Um, I, I'd argue for 92, but I, I would say 99 is like the end. It's all sort of wrapping up because we're about to hit 9-11 in Marvel movies, and that's going to kind of uh, change things. I that think. was a hell of a thing to put those together. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you said it. You said it. I didn't say it. You said it. Well, see, if you said it, we get some good publicity out of this. But... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, the next one is another, another film by a director who went on to make many other movies, but this is still my favorite of his, is um, 
David O. Russell's Three Kings. Yes. Also a studio movie, also pretty subversive for a studio movie. Uh, again, not one that you could imagine like Warner Brothers making today. Although actually maybe DeLuca and Pam Abdi would, would do something like this. Um, but Three Kings, I think, is really a strong movie. And again, it felt like this is part of this exciting time for me that I remember. And, you know, when we get to the other notables on the list, there was a lot of movies all coming out at the same time as well, which is really crazy. I think Three Kings came out in the fall of 1999. But I I, I remember, like, really being excited by it just in terms of, you know, it, it isn't shot like, Doctor Strange Love. It isn't in that style, but just the idea of doing a pitch black war comedy, but you know, with some really interesting things in this movie. And also I think a bit unlike his other movies, actually really interesting visuals, like the sort of that, the ectochrome, like bleach bypass they do and just the camera work and some of the more like surreal action, like exploding cows and like a, a, um, a, a tanker full of milk kind of exploding. And, um, and, and also just, you know, and I know like, uh, you know, I, there's obviously lots of reports of onset tension on this film <laughs> and George Clooney and David O. Russell coming to blows. Um, but it's great performances in it. Oh, and, so and, and also like random things like casting Spike Jones, yeah. a non-actor uh, in one of the leads. And he's great and he's really funny yep. and it gives uh, like a, a, a spark to the proceedings, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and Ice Cube is great. There's there's something about like there's there's a few of those movies where Clooney just to me that's like that's my George Clooney, that's my movie star. Like him, yeah, that one uh, out of sight. There's stuff and I just I you know, he found a way to sort of bring the his political interests into like a caper film instead of a I don't I don't want to bag on him. I love him, but I think we all know what I'm talking about, right? Where it's like there's sort of more serious earnest political films where you're just kind of going, god damn it, just be George Clooney. You're like George Clooney. You could be our big movie star and, and just do, just do movies like Three Kings. For Listen, you know Clooney. Clooney has you know like m- many of these films that he's done. Which is, I mean, the thing I think about Three Kings as well is I just loved how like spiky it was. Yeah, it is definitely like feels like that. It's quite like a you know like I'm sure. I mean, I know at the time it was relatively controversial as well. And again, you wonder whether like it would whether they would get away with something like that today. Um, well, one thing I was reading about it is that they originally were planning to ask um, Clint Eastwood to play the Clooney part. And I just want to imagine how Clint Eastwood and David O. Russell, if he came to blows with George Clooney, what would have happened with Clint? <laughs> you must have meant Clint Eastwood in your time, Joe. You know, I don't think I ever have. I've been in his office no, I, many times, but he's never been there. I, I, I have, he's the one big film star who I had the opportunity to meet and I got too scared. I, <laughs> I, I was, at a, I really, and I regret it now. It's an idiotic thing to do, but I think I was at the premiere of J. Edgar and his mm-hmm. publicist was somebody that I'd worked with. And she says, Edgar, would you like to meet Clint Eastwood? And I went, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I completely I, chickened out. I met him I at a uh, at a party. Out. Paul Haggis did a party. It was kind of uh, uh, it was a sort of a respite, I guess, was the idea from award season chaos. It invited like everyone had been nominated for something that year to a party at his house. It was very uh, low key, and Clint was there. Um, and 
I got to know, I guess, just enough that he knew. And he's like, hey, you want to meet Clint? I'm like, are you on your fucking mind? Of course I want to meet Clint. And it was just, I got 10 minutes <laughs> with him. And I honestly don't know if it registered with him who or what I was, but he just went off into this thing. And we had this wonderful conversation about how without any screenwriters, there are no movies. And then he talked about what a great experience Beguiled was. And it was mostly me just going, uh-huh. Uh-huh. You're like, yeah, like Beguiled. When I did Beguiled, that was a hell of a script. You're like, yeah, keep going. Oh, I mean, wow. that was it. There was no, you know, <laughs> I can't see having ever, you know, having this kind of conversation with Clint, but. This is, this is a sidebar away from 1999. I never met Clint, but I did quite before he, you know, sort of shortly before he died, I did meet Michael Cimino mm. in the Rite Aid on Sunset and Fairfax. And I recognized him and I said, are you Michael Cimino? And he turned around to me and he goes, who wants to know? <laughs> I just, and I, I had just shown at the New Beverly, the only reason I approached him is the night before I had shown Thunderbolt and Lightfoot at the New Beverly, literally the night before. And I just thought, that's Michael Cimino. And I told him, I think he then thought, he didn't know I was a director. I think he thought I was like a program at the New Beverly, which, you know, yes. in a way, in a way I have been. <laughs> and, uh, he did tell me a story. He sort of started talking about the shoot of that film. And I tried to coax him. I said, do you want to come down tonight and tell me what you just told me? And he said a really sad thing. He said, uh, he goes, people have cameras now, mm. which was really sad. And that was like, so he sort of said, ah, you know, people have cameras now. He just, you know, didn't want us to do it privately. But he did tell me one story that was funny. He was talking about that. And I, he was talk, talking about being directed by Clint. And he said, um, you didn't get much thinking time with Clint. Like if you finished a shot and Clint turned around saying, what are we doing next? And if you said uh, for more than two seconds, Clint would be, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're picking up the camera and we're going over here. <laughs> and Clint would like literally pick up the tripod. And it's like, Clint, no time for thinking. Just like, let's move over here and do the next shot. <laughs> the other thing I remember that he told me, two things about the test screening. It's it, like, it's also Michael Cimino. I mean, maybe a, a, a slight um, indication that he wasn't entirely on this planet. He said, I was at the test screening and everybody's laughing at the movie. And I went up to the projectionist and I said, why is everybody laughing? And the projectionist said, because it's funny. <laughs> 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 and he also said that Clint Eastwood came to the test screening in disguise wearing a Groucho Marx. <laughs> like glasses and nose and moustache, which is amazing, amazing thing to think about. Imagine sitting right, next we got to get guy. back to our year. we yeah, got to get back to our year. year. 19, You've heard the show, Edgar. This is what we do. It's all right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and you, I, 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 this, the, the rabbit holes is the thing, isn't it? Exactly right. Um, That's the show. He even brought a list of rabbit holes, too. That's the crazy thing. <laughs> the next one, I think, is, is, a, is another debut. Actually, we've just mentioned this guy because he starred in Three Kings. What, what a year for him, 1999, starring in Three Kings. Yeah. And making his debut with being John Malkovich, Spike Jones's first movie. Was it Charlie Kaufman's first movie as well? Is a screenwriter? Yes. Well, it was his first Charlie I mean, Kaufman what, film, at least. You know what I mean? What a double debut, my God. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing about this film is really interesting. I think it's interesting where I feel like this was the first of like a particular slot at the Oscars, which up until this year when the Daniels went with everything everywhere all at once usually like the kind of the kooky film of the year, they would give best original screenplay. 
And, and usually it would be in the Oscars, they'd have that slot for like, well, this kind of film is like far out and like too weird for the Academy Awards, but we've got to give it something because it's really good. Well, the original screenplay for best being John Malkovich. Well, it's yeah. The, yeah, the Pulp Fiction but, slot. Yes, yes. Although, I, you know, I think sort of, um, I would, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't really have anything against Forrest Gump. I would have rather seen Pulp Fiction than that, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, no. Well, but I'm saying the, the, the Forrest Gump song. <laughs> yeah, no, we I, just, I don't, I don't hate, I don't hate Forrest Gump, but like Pulp Fiction versus Forrest Gump at Best Picture, it's like, come on. Um, yeah, but it's but, the Academy. Yeah. Remember, it's the Academy. It, it all goes. It all, <laughs> all makes sense if you just remember that it's the Academy. Yeah. No, but I do feel like there's that that slot where the more interesting film, like as you say, the sort of offbeat and more interesting film. Get Out is another one. Get Out got yeah. best original screenplay. You know, yeah. like it's usually Pulp Fiction got best original screenplay, and like yes, and Being John Malkovich is one of those films that like I think is is much beloved, but like probably for at least for the Oscars and stuff, just like a little too too wacky to sort of give it anything else other than screenplay, but. Yeah. What a great first movie, my God. And what a, like, just a, you know, a, just a great idiosyncratic piece of work. What a concept. I mean, it's, uh, it's, and the fact that they got him to do it, it's just amazing. Uh, yeah. I've always wanted to know whether there was any backup person <laughs> Malkovich. <laughs> yeah, what, that takes a lot of balls to write that script. He's, I mean, he, he, he'd have to be flattered by it when he got that script. There's a script called Being John Malkovich. You'd have yeah. to be flattered by that. I, I would hope. Um, <laughs> I could put this out to the universe. Spike Jones doesn't make enough movies. Yes, 100% agree. 100% agree. Uh, I don't know what he's doing, but we want more. No, the one that, the one that really drives me crazy is Adaptation, where, you know... I can't like every screenwriter I know at one point or another has just gone, Oh fuck it. I should just write about what I'm going through. And it's a joke. And you're like, yeah, you can't. And then he did it. And we're all sitting there going, you motherfucker. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> he did well, it and he can't. handed it in and they did it. And now none of us can do it. So I mean, he's the nine 11 of screenwriters is what I'm saying. <laughs> don't, don't say that. That credit goes solely to the other people that we can't mention. I'll just, all I'll say is that, like, Joe Dante's Matinee is my favorite film featuring an ant. <laughs> <laughs> that's as mu- but that's as much as I'll say. Not anti-main. <laughs> so many of the movies we discussed on the show, uh, you probably know, are available at MoviesUnlimited.com, which is our sponsor expert on movies since 1978. They've got thousands of titles to choose from, classics, hard-to-find titles, and new releases, too. Support our sponsor and be good to yourself. That's right. Uh, audio commentaries, deleted scenes, alternate takes, production stills, scripts, documentaries, you know what I mean? It's like hard, physical media is just packed with so much stuff that I guess some streaming has that, but then you're streaming. You don't know if it's going to be there tomorrow when you check back in or you put it on your hard drive and then something happens to your hard drive and you're screwed. Physical media, folks. Um, and I would wager that 99% of the movies from 1999 that uh, Edgar Wright is talking about today are available at MoviesUnlimited.com. And if they're not, that's because they're not available anywhere. In fact, when Space comes out on Blu-ray, they're going to have it. Guarantee you. So uh, please support our sponsors because they've been great to us. Click the Movies Unlimited banner on our website. Buy your favorites. Hard to find films, imports, and more. 
Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website where shipping is always free on orders over $50. And now let's go back in time again to 1999 and Edgar Wright. The next one, I this is I also saw this in the summer of like 1999, and I remember I saw it at the cinema at the top of the Beverly Center in Los Angeles. Oh God, what a hole that was! <laughs> well, but this was when it was buzzing. This was before it started to slowly die. I, I know, but it died because it, they, it was so badly designed. It had pillars in the middle of the of, of the room, and you, if you and there were seats actually behind the pillar, so that you sat behind the pillar. You had to move your head this way, move it that way, because you couldn't see what was in front of you. Terrible. The last time I went to the Beverly Center before it closed, I I did watch a movie, and I was the only person in there. But when I saw this movie. It was packed and the whole place was like rocking. The theater was vibrating and it's South Park, bigger, longer and uncut, oh, yeah. which I just think is that one of the films where I don't think I've ever heard people laughing. I mean, I'm sure probably back in the day, like something like Blazing Saddles would have had this response as well. But like it was just explosive laughter all the way through to the point where just people seem to be exhausted like well just not exhausted they were hoarse by the end of it because they couldn't kind of like laugh anymore but as soon as that kind of terence and philip uncle fucker song kicks in like the roof has gone off the cinema and it never comes back down (laughs) but i think that i mean those guys i really hats off to them because also this film as well starts kind of like a path to further greatness where I think Team America World Police is also just an incredible movie. And then, not a film, but on stage, The Book of Mormon is a a once-in-a-lifetime achievement of, like, satire and music together. But the thing, but what was, I remember with South Park, Bigger, Longer, Iron Cup, the thing that was really key is, like, wow, these guys really know musicals. Mm -hmm. Because all of the song numbers that they did with Mark Shaman, I want to say, like, the, the songs are, like, dead on and like and you could see that they actually in a career it's obviously the whole film is satirical and scabrous and like couldn't be more irreverent but also what i loved about it is you knew deep down and i think this is maybe a trey parker thing maybe more than matt but you knew like these guys really love musicals you could tell because they got it down pat i just thought was that film was well, they started they started with cannibal the musical and, uh, yes. <laughs> and that's, that, we have our new our new guru Bear McCreary did that for Trailers from Hell, uh, and uh, it, it's it's a trauma picture, so the trailer is all fuzzy and horrible. But uh, but it's he loves the movie, and um, and it's you know it's it's not quote a good movie, but it, you can certainly when you see the Cannibal the musical, you can certainly see what was to come. Yeah, I mean the thing is, you know this, Joe, because this is what you've always done is that like is. It's when you're making, I wouldn't, has, I wouldn't call like South Park a spoof, but like, it's like when you have affection for the form, that's when the greatest comedy comes. That's what Absolutely. I think when you've done this, Joe, in a lot of your movies, I hopefully have done this. Mel Brooks, particularly with the early ones, not so much the later ones, like when he has real affection for the genre, you can retell. Yeah. And the thing that why South Park kills is you can tell they love musicals. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, not uh, I, I don't get the sense that Mel Brooks loves Star Wars, for instance. No, exactly. <clears throat> Spaceballs right. is a movie that's 10 years too late and 10 years too early at the same time. 
I mean, it's like, why is it coming out in 1987? Like, <laughs> yeah. Star Wars came out in 1977, yeah. and like, and the re-releases came in 1997. It's like you're a decade out of whack. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't. Like- I love Mel Brooks, but I, I didn't even age 13. I didn't even like Spaceballs. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because there's a lot of kids I find today who do, which is interesting. Um, because also no, they I, don't have I, that I thing. It all comes the, out together in their world, you know. Yes. It's like, can't hold a candle to Blazing Saddles, my God. Yeah, no, not even. Uh, but I want to, I feel like, have I asked you this before? I feel like we talked about musicals last time. Spezbos. Spezbos. <laughs> I feel like we talked musicals last but but, you know, of anybody who, um, uh, you know, just looking at your filmography, Edgar, it's like, you, there's, there's a musical just inside you waiting to explode out. We all know it. Are you, um, do you think about that consciously? Well, I guess Scott Pilgrim is kind of a musical. Yeah, no, there's. Scott Pilgrim is kind of a musical. That's yeah, and Baby Driver is kind of a musical. Oh, Last Night in Soho is kind of a musical. Well, the, well, the, <laughs> the music in Baby Driver is the driving force. Right, that's what I'm saying. But there's you're you're the yeah. I mean, I, I when I, when I was when I was pitching Last Night in Soho to Christy Wilson Cairns, who co-wrote the screenplay with me. I said, uh, last night's Saturday was like a horror B-side to Baby Driver. That was my pitch to about it, you know. <laughs> but I, in terms of actually making one, making one, I'd like to, and sometimes things will come up. But it is that thing. I mean, when I was doing interviews with Soho, people would ask me it all the time. And not to be, like, negative or cynical, the other thing in the back of my mind was like, yeah, but also a bunch of movies came out this year and they all bombed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> And it's like, even the good ones, even yeah. I really, I really, you know, I really liked Annette and I, re- I really liked Spielberg's West Side Story. I thought it was mm-hmm. gangbusters. I know, you know, I just thought I was, on a technical level, it was extraordinary. And yeah. it's like, well, I mean, I know they all had the unfortunate thing of opening during the pandemic. So you can't kind of hold that against them. But it was a thing where people say to me, oh, will you make a musical? I said, yeah, if people showed up, I would. Like, I just, you know, or... Maybe it's finding something completely new. I, I, I wonder whether adaptations of stage musicals is the way to go, whether it's about actually creating something new for the screen. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, I think it's got to so be I would like to, but also it's like if, if people would, if people, I guess, you know, like um, if I built it, would they come? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Um, next one? Yeah. Yeah. This next film, I think, has become was was so successful and so famous and um so imitated and so um like spoofed that i think um it actually does a disservice to how great the film is but uh uh m night Shyamalan's 1999 film the sixth sense i think is a really strong movie and i think it's a shame in a way it was almost like a victim of its own success i mean i say that it's like a massive massive hit and are not nominated for Oscars. But in a weird way, I remember I saw this opening weekend in Los Angeles. I was, this was during the same summer holiday. And I saw it at the Beverly Connection. And I saw it when the uh, materials for the movie is really good misdirect in the trailer because you think, oh, it's about this kind of like dead girl. And she's trying to sort of tell people who killed her. And that is part of the story. But I remember I saw it on Saturday, maybe even the Friday. I saw it the first day of release. And I remember after that twist ending kicks in, I don't know if there's anybody. Well, I was going to say, is there anybody on the planet who had, doesn't know the ending of Sixth Sense? Yes, 
my girlfriend when I showed it to her two years ago. <laughs> oh, nice, <laughs> nice. And what was amazing? I mean, she this I, I I love my girlfriend for many things, and one of them is that she does not know the made the endings of major movies. Fantastic. And so I try I try them out on her all the time, and I like and it's just like and then it's with with especially with films of twist where I know she doesn't know the ending. Like it is, uh, it's always fun to watch it with her and see whether, um, and see whether she's figured it out or see whether she hasn't. Six Sense, she didn't. The Crying Game, about halfway through, there was a moment where Jim Broadbent, the bartender, says to Stephen Ray, he goes, I have to tell you something about Dill. And Julia, my girlfriend, said, She's a prostitute. She's a man. She's a man. <laughs> just like exploded. Like, yeah. And then, I, and then she looks at me to confirm or deny. And I said, I'm not saying anything. I'm mm-hmm. not saying anything. And then when the, the revelation scene comes up late, she goes, I knew it. I told you. I told you. <laughs> but Sixth Sense, she did not see it coming. And it was what a, what a trip, like, more than 20 years later to watch that movie again and see, like, that twist, if you don't know. The problem is, when that movie came out in the UK, even though it was a big hit, it came with the, um, it was burdened with the fact that everybody says, oh my God, there's a great twist at the end. Oh, that, which ruins it. Yeah. So, what doesn't though? But yeah. It I sort of ruins mean, it. Yeah. When things arrive, it's like, oh my God, wait till you see the twist. Wait till you see the twist at the end. Like yeah. then people are kind of saying, oh yeah, I figured it out that Bruce Willis, you know. Well, that's I mean, the frustrating thing. Cause yeah, I'm with you. I saw it, I think, remember I was driving home from Comic-Con and traffic was so bad. I just hid out in some movie theater, like halfway between San Diego and LA, I walked into whatever was showing. It was six cents. I had no idea. And I'm hundred percent convinced that if you had told me, cause it's not, you know, you would have too. If you had said, Hey, there's a great twist. You'd be sitting there going, picking up the clues, but the film doesn't telegraph them in, in the way that the crying game literally tells you there's a secret that you're going to have to figure out, you know? And and it's still, so what's interesting though watching the watching the crying game with my girlfriend she did not she did not get it for the first half right like, so it was credit but then the character goes like I'm going to tell you some you know <laughs> it was that's, actually that's, it was the Jim it was the Jim the Broadbent story. scene that did it yeah like when Jim Broadbent says that though now you're going oh I got to think about this no way you wouldn't but the thing that I really really loved too about Sixth Sense is because it did it it got me and i have you know people are always like well it didn't get me and i'm like well then you didn't have as much fun at a movie as i did sorry but the thing i really love yeah. is you watch it the second time and, and it doesn't it's, cheat it doesn't cheat and it's still and it's incredibly powerful i think one of the greatest things one of my favorite scenes in a movie is that dinner with bruce willis and his wife which the it's first time you with, see it it's yeah. one thing and the second time you see it it's another thing and both of them are incredibly powerful and it's just like this is so yeah weird. it it is um that scene is a particularly good it, 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 what that's the thing is what's really good because sometimes when you see films like that you're you're uh, oh does it cheat and like there was a film I, there's a film I rewatched the other day actually for, for when I was doing Quentin's thing I rewatched Sisters which when I was writing last night in Soho I would I would think about these cheat scenes in thrillers with twists like Psycho has a great one where um. Norman goes into the house to talk to his mum, and Marion Crane is standing on the porch outside the motel, mm-hmm. listening to Norman and his mother talking through the window. Mm-hmm. In reality, there's no way that the voice could reach that far down to the motel, but it doesn't matter because it's great, you know? Yeah. Um, and then in Sisters, there was one which I'd even quoted it when we were writing last night in Soho um, of like, oh, it's clever when they have the twins talking because. 
Margot Kidder goes into another room and then you see her shadow and she's talking to her twin and you hear two voices. But then when I watched it again the other day, I realized they do cheat because Margot Kidder's in the bathroom, um, Dominique or Danielle, one of the two. And then I think she's Dominique, isn't she? And then, oh no, she's Danielle. And then the, the evil twin calls out to her and says, Danielle, Danielle. And I was thinking, wait, is she throwing her voice? How did she do that? <laughs> so that was one where I just thought, sort of, I was actually so shocked to see that it, it like, but I mean, I, get, I forgive it. If it works, I forgive it anything. The thing is, as you were pointing out though, the scene with Olivia, a scene with Olivia Williams playing his, his, his widow mm-hmm. um, is brilliantly mm-hmm. done. And it all like makes sense in the way of that they're talking and not talking. And even the way, there's a brilliant scene earlier when, Tony Collette and Haley Josman have gone to see the doctor and Bruce is present. And just the way that it's staged yeah. and written, you yeah. don't question the fact that like, nobody looks at Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis talks to Haley, but like obviously Tony Collette doesn't. It's just the whole thing is brilliantly staged. And I, I think maybe because he's gone on to make lots of other movies with twists and because the film is so famous that it doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say this though, another thing. Like, the film is not completely um, absolved from ruining itself because James Newton Howard's score, uh, released uh, probably at the same time as the film, track 11 is called Malcolm is Dead. (laughs) You could have called it something else. (laughs) You could have called it something else. Oh, my God. I mean... I, I, I wonder if like there was pressing to that thing if M. Night said, oh, great, I finally got the soundtrack for The Sixth Sense on vinyl. And then he'd be like, what the fuck? Malcolm is dead? Why did he do that? <laughs> uh, well, also, don't you feel like, because it, it's, it's not really his first film, but it's basically his first film. It, it feels like one of those, and I think the best ideas tend to come from this. You know, it hit him in the shower. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, my fucking God, he's dead. And then you've like, this just once or twice in a lifetime kind of brilliant idea. And now somehow he's put himself in a position or he did for a long time where it was like, now I have to replicate that with every film. And I don't think you can generate the end of the sixth sense consciously. I don't think you can sit down and go, let me come up with one of yeah, these twists in the world. It's, it's, a, it's a tough kind of, um, it's a tough kind of pressure to put on yourself to be like the chubby checker of film. It's like, hey, it's Mr. Twist. It's a hard act to follow. <laughs> Give us another twist, M. Night. Oh, 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 that's too good. That's too, you had to have that in your pocket. <laughs> I, I didn't actually. I did just come uh-huh. up with that. Because <laughs> chubby checker can't do it. An, another song afterwards that doesn't have twist in the title. Oh, well, right? let's twist again, yeah. <laughs> Let's twist again. I'm sure there's a Christmas twist one. Uh, Christmas. Let's twist again. Every every M Night film after the Sixth Sense yeah. should just be called Let's Twist Again. Yeah. Well, it's that, that mid seventies chubby when it's just like another fucking twist where it just it's kind of losing the steam. But uh, what what is next? I do now? like some. I, I I will say I do I I do like some later M Night films. I do I yeah. do. I mean, actually, I think in the last couple of years, actually, I yes. like The Visit. I like Split. And um, I liked she, it to the last two, actually. The old, I liked old, old. and um, Knock at the Cabin. This, I old has got some old. good stuff in it. Yeah. I, I, li- I, like, I like the ending of Old. It doesn't, I, I like, actually, it's not so much a twist as an explanation. And I was like, yeah. oh, you know, I'm with it, man. Like, I'm, I'm, yeah. da- I'm always, the thing with him, I'm always up for what he's, I want to, yeah. I want 
I want him to succeed. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm a fan. Yes. And I want it to be, I want it to be good. I'm, I'm never rooting against him. Yeah. Well, and the thing too, that I always, and I feel like this is something he's done to himself, although he, he is starting to get away from that, like shock twist. I think I, don't, I have not seen the new one is every single time I sit down to watch something he's done, there's a moment where I go, Oh, I forgot that this guy was such a great director. You know I mean, it almost, he's no, when, almost overshadowed. When, when he's, when he's great, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. The next one is a documentary, uh, American movie directed by Chris Smith. I love it. About uh, the independent, very independent filmmaker from Wisconsin, Mark Borchardt, and his struggles to finish his movie Coven. Coven. Coven, which turns out to Coven. be an acceptable alternate pronunciation, I have since found out. I, I saw this... Um, this is a film that me and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost became obsessed with. And we, we saw it and then we would just watch it a lot and quote it a lot. And I don't know if you remember, but the DVD used to have on the extras page, used to have Mike Shank, who is his kind of acid fried friend, who sadly passed away last year. No longer with us, sadly, yes. No longer with us. But Mike Shank, who is his very funny sort of, you know, kind of acid casualty friend. Um, and very loyal kind of lieutenant all the way through the film. It's a very sweet story about friendship apart from anything else. But Mike Shank's home phone number used to be on the DVD. And we were watching the film round at mine. I remember we found that. And of course, we immediately called him and we spoke to Mike Shank on the phone in Wisconsin. And one thing I remember, we were telling him how much love the movie and, and they'd just been doing press in London. We'd missed them. And, and we went famous then, so he wouldn't know who, he had no idea who we were. But I remember saying to him, because he'd just been in London, and, you know, when you're wrapping up the call, I said, well, Mike, if you're ever in London again, let us buy you a beer. And Mike said, thanks. I don't think I will be. (laughs) (laughs) In a very final way. He taught guitar lessons online. And apparently I have musician friends who checked him out. They're like, he's really good. He's really good. I... There's so many quotes from American movie. It's like a, a very quotable movie. However, when Mike Shank died last year, very sadly, I posted online a clip from the deleted scenes because there is a, a, a clip that wasn't in the movie but is on the deleted scenes. And I think about it all the time because it's one of those funny non sequiturs that is sort of quite... Um, existential and a great existential quote so the scene on the deleted scenes is that they're trying to go to their shoot in the snow and the car is broken down so they're standing out in this show waiting for like roadside assistance and mark borchardt the director is really pissed off and just standing there glowering because they can't get to the shoot and chris smith is just filming it's snowing on them and then mike shank out of nowhere says Sometimes I wish I was in the band ACDC. And Chris Smith, the director, says, why is that, Mike? He goes, because then I wouldn't be stuck out here in the snow. (laughs) 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 And I I think about that all the time. I think about it all the time. Sometimes I wish I was in the band (laughs) ACDC. Then I wouldn't be stuck out here in the snow. (laughs) Words to live by. Words to live by. Joe, you must love that film, right? I have not seen it. Oh my <laughs> God, you would love it. I swear Wait, to God. I mean, Joe, if you, any what? movie would make you think about your low-budget film days, this is the one. Joe, 
Joe, I Joe, will, Joe, you and Elizabeth are coming I over. I promise watch you. on the big screen. I'm not kidding. Oh, my I God. I promise you, you oh will love it. Oh, my God. I remember, do you remember, I think it was the Oscars that year where somebody was like Les Blank had shot little interstitials for uh, every category and had like clips from movies in the genre. And I was with a bunch of friends. We're all in the business. Everyone had loved American movie. And one of the clips they showed when they got to documentaries was Mike Shank, or not Mike, it was uh, Mark Borchard um, being shot by his mother in one of those scenes where like he's out in the woods and everybody in the room just erupted into applause because like Mark Borchard was at the fucking Oscars. We're oh, like, yes. yes. Yes, I remember that. Yes, it was so good. It's so good. And then you just can't, yeah, it's all right. It's okay. Oh, Joe, to you're going to love it. It's so good. Are you, wow, Joe, it's one of the greatest documentaries ever made in the history of the I, universe. I'm apparently but I, it has escaped me. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't Wait, believe we've got you on one that you haven't seen, Joe. This is major. There are, there are many. There are many. <laughs> there are many for me as well. <laughs> I want to do that one. Um, we, we, it's like I would love to do one where people come on and talk about the, the, the biggest movie they haven't seen. Because, um, oh, I, I one, actually you know, did. Like, I did a scientific sort of... Um, I figured that out, actually. I, I kind of knocked out a lot of the big ones, but I looked at, like, my biggest omissions are some Disney movies, and I'll tell you why. It's because you remember this. It's back in the 70s and 80s. Before VHS, Disney just didn't, like, the films would be in the vault and then get re-released at the cinema. Every seven they used years. To have this, yeah, so they used to have this show on British TV called Disney Time, which would show the clips and so they'd show clips of the movie. And then as I got older, I realized, oh, you know what? I don't think I've ever actually seen the whole of Bambi. I don't think I've seen the whole of Sleeping Beauty. I don't think I've seen like Cinderella. So there's a lot of big, there were some that I definitely saw at the cinema. I definitely saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Pinocchio, although my dad, who would um, always miss time film screenings of when he would take us and when we had to pick up mum. I haven't seen the end of Pinocchio to this day. I mean, maybe like the last 10 minutes because dad would be like, oh, we've got to pick up mum. And then he'd drag me and my brother out of the cinema crying like, no, we want to see Pinocchio. I, th those are some of the biggest ones for me. I did make a list of this at one point about the, the biggest films I've never seen. Maybe at the end, if we get through the end of it, I'll try and oh, I remember, find right? You did the thing but, in the New Beverly too, where it was like showing your movies he hasn't seen. Oh yeah, you I came down for one, Joe, didn't you? Yeah. What was the one, Joe, I think you came along for, didn't you come along for W.C. Fields, maybe? Yeah, I think so. It was oh, for the bank tickle, it's a gift. They don't, they or, don't still. No, they never still give a sucker that. an even break? They don't, they don't still do that, though. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they would if you're pressured. The, uh, and the one, am I wrong, and I don't mean to out you if you don't want me to, but wasn't, wasn't, didn't we, it was like Dan Waters, it's one of the people organized, you had never seen uh, The Conformist? Was that the thing? And we screened that here, right? No, I, I had never seen that. And I, I went along, I don't think we even talked about it afterwards, and I went along, I was like, great, we'll watch it, and maybe Edgar, I can feast off of Edgar's pleasure at this movie, because everybody loves it, and every oh, time yeah. I see it, I'm bored senseless. And am I wrong? And then I was cut this. <laughs> I get the sense that you had the same reaction to it. I did because I still no, I didn't. I didn't <clears> know, did you? By it. Oh, okay. I just, I, I just never. I can see it, it, it. You can see how many other movies were influenced by it. That's what's sure. really fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. I always kind of like watching Vittorio Storaro films from around that time because mm. 
even like like lesser known films there's there's a giallo film called the fifth chord which he mm. shot i think it's the same year oh, wow. as the performance and you watch that giallo and you're like my god vittoria storaro is shooting this film and look at this we're gonna get back to 1999 guys sorry yeah no that's good that's, uh, you wait till you, i go through my list of notables my god okay the next the next one the next one is uh another a film where um and i know a lot of people involved in this franchise people that made it and so i don't want to be too mean by saying i only need the first one uh the 1999 film by the wachowskis the matrix which I loved it at the time. I loved it. I loved it. I still love it. Although I haven't watched it for a long time, but it was that thing. Sometimes with, with franchises, you realize when you see the end scene that like, you don't actually need to see anymore. There's, there's no, there might be no more story to tell. And, you know, you could say this about a lot of great films. I mean, this is probably heresy to say on this podcast, although Dan said it the other day, I don't need more back to the future than the first film. No, hundred um, percent. I don't yeah. need any more Halloween than the first film. Yes. <laughs> no, and they didn't really need any more Gremlins after the first film. But we went ahead and did it. No, oh. that's not true. You know, Joe, <laughs> Joe, Joe. That is that is a bad example because Gremlins <laughs> two takes it into another dimension. That's a bad example. And let's not forget but, Howling three, which um, <laughs> I've never seen Howling two or three. <laughs> they're, 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 you don't need. Well, to. you've got uh, there's two. They all, goes all the way up to eight, so uh, you can miss them all. Do they really? Are there eight of them? Yeah, there's eight of them. Wow. wow. I mean, there's not many. There's not that many um, franchises. There's not too many franchises where they can justify. The thing is, is uh, m- most franchises end with the sort of the promise of more. And then when you actually see the story and all they can do is just sort of, sort of repeat what happened in the first one. And the Matrix, once Neo has become a god at the end of the Matrix, there's kind of no more story. Um, I will give credit, though. There are some great shots in the car chase in the second one. And There's amazing sequences, no question. Yeah. yeah I, in fact, when I was doing Baby Driver, which was shot by Bill Pope, who shot the Matrix, I sat him down and we, and we kind of took apart the freeway chase from Matrix uh, Reloaded, the second one. This one, though, I think the first one is like it's it's a, it's an interesting film in terms of again, um, again that a major studio made it or that like that they bankrolled an original movie, albeit with lots of influences that they acknowledge, especially from anime. Um, but they bankrolled this to the tune of I don't know how much this cost in nineteen ninety nine, but probably like seventy million at least. And it's it's it you know it's it's what doesn't happen today is that a studio would take a chance on like a new film. It's sad, you know, um, they'll do Matrix 4, but they wouldn't do like another Matrix, you know? And it's real science fiction too. Who was it? Somebody was telling me this the other day. I'm trying to th- uh, think who to quote. Oh my God, was it? Um, somebody said something about the Matrix. They were explaining it to a millennial. And when they explained the plot, um, the the teenage daughter said why would you want to live in the real world (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's a valid i can't remember who told me that so i apologize hey there this is edgar as soon as i finished the podcast i remembered who it was that had told me that he had been explaining the plot of the matrix to a teenager who hadn't seen it and they responded 
Why would you want to live in the real world? And that person was Keanu Reeves. No joke. Well, I have a friend who teaches philosophy in Philadelphia, and for years, you know, he'd have like these these early college age kids, and they would watch The Matrix, and that would be one of the key discussions. And usually, what people came out of it with is um, Neo's the bad guy. Well, J- Joey Pants in the movie, Joey. Um, how do you say his full name? Joey. I would say Joey Pants. Pantoliano. He he has the line, doesn't he? Where he he wants to stay because he's like, I get to eat steak, I get to drink red wine. Why would I want to live? in the hellhole that is the real world. I mean, it's an interesting twist to it. And in fact, that's the thing that actually with the sequels that it can't really, it can't really conjure up a good reason for them to stay in the real world because the Matrix is so much cooler. <laughs> I also, the thing that I, I mean, I just watched John Wick chapter four like a couple of days ago and credit to Keanu Reeves of just what, a, what an amazing sort of career to keep kind of like, Every time you think he's kind of, um, you know, down, he like comes up with another like mega hit. Now over like five, four decades more, like 80s, 90s, the noughties, the 10s, the 20s, five decades. Is there another actor? He's been in three wildly successful franchises where he's been the lead. The Matrix, I mean, Bill and Ted all and credit to him. It's like, yeah, yeah. Also, the thing, the thing with Keanu Reeves, I think, and he was one of those, I mean, now there's a lot of these actors that do this. But I do feel that the thing that was interesting about The Matrix is when you're watching those act- action scenes, and you could say the same about Lawrence Fishburne and Hugo Weaving, but particularly with Keanu Reeves, you're thinking like, oh, and Carrie Ann Moss as well, we shouldn't forget. Um, you think you're watching that and you think, this guy has done the work. Like, this guy has really done the training. And that was what I'd, you know, Bill Pope, who I've made three movies with, shot all three of The Matrix. He didn't shoot the fourth one, but he shot the, the, the trilogy. And he would always just say, like, Keanu Reeves is the hardest working, most diligent, nicest guy you could ever work with in film. And, and when I met Keanu Reeves for the first time, I said to him, I said, oh, Bill Pope says you're the nicest guy in showbiz. And he goes, well, Bill Pope's pretty nice too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, I have a real fondness for this. And, and it's that thing where I kind of, I, I, I knew even as I saw the second one, that I enjoyed parts of it, but it's like, oh, I didn't need to see any more. And, you know, like with a lot of franchises, I'd rather live with the high that the ending of the first one gave me than, than need anything else. I mean, try telling that to the studios. Oi, yeah, exactly. Uh, what is next? This film is a 1999 film, but I'm pretty sure it didn't get released in the UK until 2000, but it counts, is um, Audition, Takeshi Miike's Audition which I saw at the Curzon Soho in London. And not only is it a great film, but my main memory of it is I've never seen so many people leave the movie in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Usually if it's something where things are getting kind of hardcore, that people might walk out halfway through or reach a point where they've, they're, they're done. But for people to kind of be walking out in the final scene was something else. So I have the memory of watching that. If you haven't seen the movie, there's an infamous acupuncture scene at the end, which goes about as far as it could possibly go. But I have this image of watching it and silhouettes walking in front of me because people were leaving. And it which wasn't just made it in more... England? No, no, not at all. Oh, no. Yeah, I think it was really notorious for cutting Martin. stuff. They were in the early 80s. Uh, they were in the 80s. I think uh, after James Furman left the BBFC, by, by like the late 90s, early noughties, that had all changed, basically. 
Mm. Um, we call them the noughties in the in the UK, the zero zeros. Um, <laughs> yeah, that changed. The audition was definitely released uncut. Um, and I think maybe uh, like I watched it. I remember I watched it the Curzon Soho, and I I just remember the seats going up at certain points. I mean. It's a brilliant slow burn, that film, because it takes a long time to reveal itself. When McKay did his Masters of Horror, the one that they wouldn't show on Showtime, uh, it was, it's, a, it's gorgeous. It's a beautifully made film, but it, it's, it's really hard to watch. And all I kept thinking, because this is always involved with the show, was what would it be like to be the mixers, the sound mixers, who have to come constantly replay this material over and over and oh, over. I mean, you, you want to kill yourself at the end of the day. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant... What, what I love about that film, though, is it, it has integrity. What I like about it is that it plays it very straight. It's, like, it's, like, it's not like a schlocky film at all. In fact, the fact that it's sort of sober and serious and even has, in the opening stretches, some sort of rom-com elements to it, it's just a brilliant bait and switch because it never really kind of until a certain point where there's an amazing scene with a telephone and a body in a bag it doesn't really reveal itself as the horror film is going to be but i think the fact that it plays it straight makes it just all the more terrifying it's it's brilliant that film and it's yeah. it's also just got such a mischievous cruel streak at the end just like the acupuncture scene but also with the kind of amputations and her making that noise going Kitty, 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 kitty. <laughs> like it's, it's really extraordinary. Well, what's right, interesting about I, him is like you talk about, you know, he's almost like the opposite of Wes Anderson because he's made what, like a hundred plus movies and he can do something like that, which as you say, has an almost stately look and feel for most of it, but he can go off and do Ichi the killer in between that and, you know, Gozu and these like incredibly insane, almost cartoonish over the top violence in a, in a very different way from audition. And then, and then back into the, this kind of vibe or, you know, 13 Warriors, which is a, you know, an amazing film. Oh, that, I love that. That's great. Very, 13, uh, almost 13 like, Assassins. Oh, 13 Assassins. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's, he's fascinating to me. He's such an interesting filmmaker and quick. I, with the 10 minutes that we have left, I would like to run yes. through 1999 notables of which some of these movies are some people's favorite films and actually there were, I mean, most of these first ones I like a lot, but like these are also released in 1999. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, which I saw at the New Art on opening release when people were dumbfounded by whether it was a real documentary or not, um, and just ended in like complete shock science, and people were like standing in the aisles watching the entirety of the credit roll and then standing outside the lobby of the New Art blinking in the light, not sure whether they just watch a snuff movie or not. I mean, <laughs> it's difficult to remember. You, I'm sure you guys remember when people, it was a real thing. Back in the pre-early internet days where you could keep something like that going secret, for quite a long yeah. time. Yes. Yeah, I saw it at the uh, also this, too. And, and I, I, yeah, remember, yeah. I remember at the, at the end of the screening that I was at, uh, you're right, there was not a sound. And then somebody said, so that's it? That's the ending. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember people being pissed off. I remember more that people were. Oh, kind my of audience was by very it. angry. No, people. I, I saw the new one too. I think that, yeah, I just remember I, someone screaming "fuck this movie" was the. <laughs> I didn't have that. I remember people just walking out like they'd been hit by a car or something. But you say you, it very, seems like you saw a matinee. 
I they? think I did. It definitely yeah. they were coming huh? into the light for sure. I did see it. Yeah, well, at, right. at night they were less happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's this is more ninety nine nine films. We're going to go faster, and we might need to stop for a couple. Mike Judge's Office Space, massive yes. cult movie. Yes. Michael Mann's The Insider, which some people consider one of his very best, if not the best. Absolutely, he's uh, right. Yeah. The Limey, Steven Soderbergh's <laughs> film, starring Terrence Stamp, Peter Fonda, Barry Newman, Joe D'Alessandro. Great movie. Just, just um, so good. David so Lynch's good. The Straight Story, a, a great movie that people don't talk about enough. Um, That's because it's so unlynchian. <laughs> Both David Lynch and David Mamet made G-rated movies that year. What was the David Mamet yeah. G-rated movie? The David Mamet one was, um, um, oh my God, that now I forget the, the play, uh, The Winslow Boy. Oh, right. Which is really, really good. And and you watch it and it's like, it's certainly, there's Mametian aspects. You can see why he was drawn to it. But I remember just thinking it was really funny that the two Davids had done G-rated movies in 19. Okay, next up. Sophia Coppola's debut, The Virgin Suicides, which is a very good movie a with an excellent yeah. soundtrack by Air. That's right. Um, I'm not going to get you onto soundtracks, Joe, because we have seven minutes before I go. <laughs> <laughs> the, ne- the next one, the next one was was in IndieWire recently. They said it was the best film of the '90s. Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Nope. Um, nope. I don't agree with that, but I do. I actually haven't. I I, I am beguiled by that movie, but I haven't seen it in a long time. I saw it twice at the cinema, and I found it very intriguing. But like, I've always meant to revisit it. But I do remember similar to the Blair Witch story, my friend, the comedian Rich Fulcher, saw it at the Chinese theater. And he said in the scene, when the orgy scene, when the guy says, what is the first password? Something the audience shouted out, bullshit. And then he says, what is the second, what is the second password? And the guy goes, bullshit. (laughs) And I wasn't there for that screening, but I always Uh, think of that. I wish I had been. Another, another one, the, the next two are also ones that a lot of people's like favorite movies of all time. Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia came out at the end of 1999. I, that's another one I haven't been back to for a long time because I remember the first, I think I've only seen Magnolia and I, I love PTA, but I've only seen that one once because I remember the time that I saw it was so intense that whenever my girlfriend brings up watching it, which she does frequently, I'm like, yeah, let me just prepare myself for Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> I remember particularly it reaches a peak of intensity. And this is a film, I think I, maybe I've seen it more than once actually, but I remember when I think of Magnolia, I think of the scene of Julianne Moore in the pharmacy when she is giving such an intense performance. It's scary to witness. Um, a lot okay, of good the stuff next one, in that another, movie. Another, uh, sorry? It's a lot of good stuff in that movie, I think. There is a lot yeah, of good stuff it in is. that movie. It is a lot of great stuff in that movie. The next one, again, like major, major cult movie, sometimes people's favorite movies of all time, Fight Club. Also, The Fall of 1999. That's right. Um, I have to rip through these now because I got to go. You never talk about Fight Club. Yeah, we don't talk about Fight Club. Uh, Bringing Out the Dead, I think an underrated Scorsese movie. I love it so much. Yeah, great film. Uh, Next one, Lynn Ramsey's Rat Catcher, which I don't know if you've seen that film, but you should. Yep. Um, yep. A, a, a really dark and uh, beautiful kind of, um, I mean, she's sort of like the, uh, um, the Scottish Terence Malick. I mean, but it, it's sort of Terence Malick by way of Ken Loach, by way of Lynn Ramsey. Actually, you know what? It's, just give it to Lynn Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> Another underrated film by an author, 
Summer of Sam by Spike Lee, which I think is very good. It is I'm going to have to go back because I remember being very disappointed, but people keep telling me that um, it warrants Ex- reviewing. Exceptional editing in that movie. A Room for Romeo Brass, which I think is Shane Meadows, who's a, a great independent British film director. Yeah. I think it's his third film, actually. I think he did Small Time and then 24-7. I don't think that was released one. yet. But this is... It's a really good movie, and it is the debut performance of Paddy Considine, who steals oh. the movie and gives such a hypnotic, crazy performance that, like, I think for a long time people thought he was the guy, he was that guy in the movie. He's a very funny but intense and uh, character. It's it's uh, Shane Meadows. I mean, is, is another person I guess in this mold of like Spike Lee and it's not Spike Lee, sorry very much in the mold of like Mike Lee and Ken Loach, but like, but, but with a lot of humor and, and he's still like making great films and great TV to this day. And, and him and, you know, like Paddy Constein was like uh, Robert De Niro to Shane Meadows, Martin Scorsese that for, for a while they were like thick as thieves in their movies. And then including dead man's shoes, which I'm sure you've seen that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Rinfrey Brass is really worth watching and Paddy's performance is great. Um, Another one here, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, directed oh, by Jim Terrific Dunch. movie. Very underrated. A terrific movie. Very, super underrated. But I, be, I wonder if either of you have seen this next film, Japanese zombie film, Wild Zero. Yeah, with Guitar Wolf. Basic, Come on. Guitar Wolf. I sh- I'll I mean, go get the DVD the right now, if you don't believe me. <laughs> I mean, I would say, Joe, it, it is, I guess, like the Japanese... 1999 zombie version of rock and roll high school in the sense that it stars a band guitar wolf to get well actually guitar wolf for a three-piece the members of which are guitar wolf drum wolf and bass wolf and they fight zombies and what more do you need joe dante (laughs) but it is like it's like it's like a it's like a film where the ramones like uh, are in like a horror movie. It's like, you know, like a, a Japanese, um, a Japanese rock band fighting zombies. What more do you want? Okay, a couple more. <laughs> I think this is an underrated movie that people don't talk about anymore. And one of the better like Pulp Fiction ripoffs, Doug Lyman's Go. Love it. It is. It's a good It's a good movie. Hmm. St- starring a recent Oscar winner, Sarah Polly. Sarah Polly. And featuring one of the great, that, that car chase is so friggin' good. And it is just a car chase. There's no gimmick. It's not like, ooh, in the smallest world, they're going backwards on a freeway. It's just a car chase. And it's also it's a brilliant, so a brilliant sequence with, um, is it William Finkter and Jane Krakowski? Oh my God. Yeah. I, I'm cringing <laughs> now. Just, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I actually, that's the one I've been meaning to revisit. It's, it's, it's a really good movie. Um, okay. Um, some people don't like to talk about him anymore, but I will. Sweet and Lowdown is a great Woody Allen film, I think. One of the, one of the great ones of the 90s. Um, and a great Sean Penn performance as well. He's so good in that film. And Samantha Morton is amazing in that movie. My God. There's, um, there's okay, a moment we, in that we, film where he looks at, I always think of like this running gag where like you could always tell when a novelist is writing a screenplay because they'll have a line in the script that'll say, Jim looks out the window and dreams of Paris. You're like, how the fuck do I shoot that? But is it, there's a scene in Sweet and Low Down where Sean Penn just looks out the window of a bus and you know exactly what he's thinking. It's so good. It's so good. Woody Allen it was, uh, you know, like a, a master of the 90-minute movie. I rewatched Purple Rose of Cairo the other day, mm. which is 
yeah. 80 minutes long and is probably yeah. about the best comedy screenplay running 80 minutes of all time, I think. Yeah, that's great. Um, next up, by the sadly no longer with us, Anthony Mingella, the talented Mr. Ripley, which I, I did rewatch recently and I think really holds up that movie. Um, great um, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance in that. <laughs> I think that's the first film where Philip Seymour Hoffman really kind of like landed for me. It was like, who's this guy? Um, Wonderland, directed by Michael Winterbottom. I wonder if you guys have ever seen that. I don't even know. What is that? It's um, Michael Winterbottom was, you know, like a great kind of British oh, yeah, kind yeah, of filmmaker. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a film, I tell you, what, it had an influence on me because it was one of the rare films, super, super low budget, where they shot in Soho, basically kind of guerrilla style. Because Soho is one of those neighborhoods that's tough to film in because it's 24 hours. And they did a whole film set around Soho and North London. And it's got great cast of like Shirley Henderson, Molly Parker and Gina McKee playing sisters. And it's just like they're intersecting, you know, love lives and, and family life in London. But, but all with this really interesting sort of guerrilla um, documentation of Soho. It, it's, it's good. Mm. Big hit movies this year. Toy Story 2. Can't yeah. deny it. Yeah. Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Undeniably a funny film with an audience. If you saw like, that opening weekend, like, like probably as big laughs as South Park, it is, yeah. it's, it's, it's so infectiously silly, that film. I mean, you, it's just, I think it's just undeniable, like Austin Powers too. Uh, American Beauty, which I actually did rewatch recently, and I also think oh, that how to go, up. how to go. I'm terrified. I loved it when it came out. I think it holds up. I think also Sam Mendes is interesting. When he directs that movie, and he told me about this himself. But the reason I really watched it is I did a Q&A with him. And I was commenting to him about how, um, how uh, uh, interesting the coverage is. That they're kind of really ballsy coverage. And he said that when he was shooting it, he would, uh, he would, um, <laughs> like he would shoot a scene and he would shoot it in a wide shot. And Spielberg, who was producing, came up and said, uh, are you going to do any coverage? He goes, no, I was thinking I'd just play it in the wide. And apparently Spielberg said, I guess, ah, I love the naivety of the youth. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a beautifully, because obviously Conrad Hall shot that movie. It's a great looking movie. And I, I think it holds up. I mean, also it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a darker film than um, I think, you know, a major studio would be, it's, you know, was that made by DreamWorks? I think maybe. Yeah. But um, I think it holds up that movie. Okay, the one, the last film is one that I did not see at the time, and I saw it very recently, and I felt like an idiot that I'd never seen it before because this is a director that I've seen quite a few of his movies, but I, I haven't seen all of them. And whenever I see a new one, I'm like, oh my god, is Pedro Almodovar the great, one of our greatest living directors? The yeah. answer is yes. All about my mother. <laughs> oh my god, what a movie! Yeah, yeah, he's so good. I mean, he's also like Pedro Almodovar. His, his, he's so prolific. He's like almost like an incredible novelist because every time he comes out with a movie that he's written, it's like this guy. Like I know, well, beyond. I, mean, I think in a weird way, people get kind of. It's not like he's sidelined. Everybody knows he's amazing, but because he's an international filmmaker, it. I, I think it's almost like kind of gets in the way of the fact that he's just been making classic after classic since the 80s it's it's extraordinary body of work isn't it yeah 
there's that kind of liberty that comes from being that good and not having to spend, you know, you know, it's like, am I, am I, am I exaggerating that for every day you spend being creative? Anybody who's got a, a mentor is in a position to be able to take chances and do yeah. stuff. I mean, that's how Woody Allen has been operating for, you know, his entire yeah. career. He's always had a patron. Uh, and so he can fail and yeah. it's okay, you know, and the freedom to fail is one of the, yeah. one of the things that's so difficult. And he's just, he's so good. It's just, yeah, it's, it's so nice to see everything he I does. I sadly have to go, but right. my Do you want to take your last parting like, shot? Do you want to give us your well, thumbs down I mean, or is I, that too? I uh, think my thumb, my, well, my thumbs down was, I guess it was just a moment where I kind of felt like, ah, I guess not all things, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was like, I saw Star Wars episode one, The Phantom Menace. And I just remember it was in a weird way. It was kind of like a helpful thing of being able to move on and let go. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 in a way I, I thank the Phantom Menace for kind of like just saving me a lot of time in the future. <laughs> Edgar, thank you so much. I don't want to keep you another extra second. You've been so generous with your time. Um, Thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure. Great to see you again. Always nice to chat to you guys. I love the show and uh, speak to you and hopefully see you soon. The Movies That Made Me is the official podcast of Trailers From Hell, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. We are proud to be part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Learn more at airwavemedia.com. This is Josh Olsen for The Movies That Made Me. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.